Well, welcome back to this week's episode of our podcast on the book of Revelation. We are really excited today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and we have a special guest with us today. We have Dr. Matt Walsh, who is a, a professor at Acadia Divinity College in uh, Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and he was actually one of my professors when I went there to do my master's degree, and so we are really excited to have him on with us today. So welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Uh, so, Mike, why don't you tell the story of how we kind of got, we came to the point where we asked <laughs> Matt to be on the podcast today. So uh, putting together podcasts, especially something on like Revelation, takes a lot of time and research. Uh, we spend hours uh, going back over our course books and textbooks. And I started looking into like, who are some guests that could really speak into revelation that, you know, especially in areas where uh, we're weaker in our foundations, weaker in our fundamentals. And my thought was around angels and spiritual beings. So I started looking like, who is somebody who really knows about angels and spiritual beings? So I started doing Google searches and uh, Dr. Matt Walsh uh, came up his bio on Acadia um, on their website and so I started reading about it, and I mean, the dissertation, if I remember correctly, is on angelic beings. Uh, is yes, that right. right? Yeah. And so I messaged Daniel and said, hey, when did you graduate from Acadia? And he said, well, 2018. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, this guy started in 2016. So I said, okay, so Dr. Matt Walsh started in 2016. Is there any chance you know him? And he's like, well, yeah, I was his TA. And I was like, dude, you're holding out on us. Like... We don't know anything about angels. Like, can you? Do you think you could ask him to join us on the podcast? Yeah. And so he's like, "Oh yeah, I, I guess so." <laughs> yeah, we, we had some uh, good classes together. I think uh, intermediate Greek and Hebrew. I think our Hebrew class was only three people, so it was oh, a wow. pretty uh, you know intimate class setting, which was awesome. I love that class, and uh, so we are just so thankful to have you here today. Yeah, and uh, thanks for being so gracious with your time. Uh, it'd be awesome if you could just give a little bit of your background uh, on what kind of things you like to research and also just how you ended up of all different areas of study. How did you end up studying angels? It seems, you know, it's just one of those things. It's interesting to know how you got there. Great question. Um, well, first of all, uh, my background, I, uh, I studied at um, McMaster University um, I did my PhD in the religious studies department there, and I had the great privilege of uh, studying with Eileen Schuler, who is one of the editors of the Dead Sea Scrolls project. She was um, you know, one of the people who um, took the actual scrolls and and um, deciphered them, and uh, I learned so much from her. And one of the texts that she is a world-renowned expert on is called the hodeot now that is a, a word that means um thanksgivings uh by extension thanksgiving psalms so the community that that um is responsible for the dead sea scrolls the the jewish sect um for which the scrolls were their library um they had copies of the, the Old Testament books, what we know as the Old Testament. They had copies of those books. They had other writings. They also, they wrote their own material, including their own psalms. And the Hodeot um, is, a, is a 
massive scroll, one of one of the bigger scrolls, and it has basically their own version of Thanksgiving type psalms. And in in these some of these psalms, they praise God, they thank God for allowing them to have fellowship with the angels. And that really captured my attention. Hmm. Now, in the in the Old Testament, um, specifically Daniel chapter 12, there is a passage that um, celebrates the fact that people who have died have a fellowship with the angels and a glorification that's like the angels after death. But it seems to be saying in these Thanksgiving Psalms that the people who were part of this sect had fellowship with the angels in the here and now hmm. in their, in their community. Wow. So the kind of the implication is we have our theological ducks in a row. We are pious enough that the angels grace us with their presence and it's before death. We can experience this right now. That grabbed my attention. And um, one thing led to another, and I thought I want to write my, I want to write my dissertation on on that and what it means for the theology of this sect. What are some implications for maybe some other things that they believe? The fact that they were convinced that they had a a special relationship with the angels hmm. in their community. I thought I had a lot of questions before, but uh, <laughs> I have a ton of questions now, but I'll stay focused on. Yeah. Podcasts. Maybe one thing um, just to make sure that we kind of bring everyone up to the level uh, to make sure that everyone's tracking. I know that for some people, they may have never even heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So could you just give like a really brief um, introduction of what those are and why they're important and uh, wh why someone like you, a Bible believing Christian is studying these other texts and what the value of that is? Great, great questions as well. <laughs> I, I say it a little and, uh, pointedly, kind of, you know, trying to take on the persona of someone who might think, aren't we just supposed to read the Bible and why would we read something else? So just so you know what my, my intention <laughs> is. Scriptura. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. So in uh, the late 1940s, some Bedouin shepherds uh, stumbled across um, some ancient documents. They weren't sure what they, they were, but one thing led to another. And one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, certainly of the 20th century, was uncovered in caves near the Dead Sea. These documents turned out to be some of the oldest known copies of books from the Old Testament um, in existence. Mm. They predate they predate the copies of, of the Bible that we had prior to their discovery by about a thousand years. Wow. One of the most famous finds was a, a, a scroll that has all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. So uh, that's a really important um, discovery. But scholars eventually concluded that these scrolls were the library of a Jewish sect. Hmm. Now there are like like anything there are debates about the details and you know what sect was it and yeah um, 
Josephus talks about uh, a group called the Essenes. Josephus is a, a Jewish historian from the first century, and he talks about a group called the Essenes. And many scholars think that this sect um, were the Essenes or maybe a branch of the Essenes. Um, in, in, you know, in, our, in our New Testament, we read about Pharisees and Sadducees. Mm-hmm. Um, the Essenes were a, another Jewish group um, in and around the time of Jesus. And so these scrolls, most of them date to the second century BC all the way to the first century AD. And within these texts, there's not just copies of biblical books, but they have uh, commentaries on Old Testament books. There's commentaries on um, Habakkuk and Isaiah. As I mentioned, there's their own writings. They have rules for their community. Um, They have um, their own psalms that they wrote, like the Thanksgiving psalms and some Mm. other works. But to bring it back to Daniel's question, why would a Christian study these works? Well, on the one hand, they are the first or some of the earliest, I should say, some of the earliest interpretations of the Old Testament that we have. Mm. So we can understand how the Old Testament was interpreted in the centuries close to Jesus. We also can, by understanding those interpretations, make sense of some of the things that Jesus said and did in the New Testament. So it's kind of like the the best of both worlds if you are um, interested in studying the Bible. You have interpretations of the Old Testament, which help shed light on the New Testament itself. Yeah, that's really awesome, and that's a great uh, kind of answer to that question. And uh, yeah, it's just these are some of the earliest documents that we have, and it kind of gives us that that insight into how were people uh, in the centuries leading up to Jesus and around that time, how are they thinking about these topics and these questions? And so it can really shed light on how, uh, you know, just what the Jewish world was like in the first century. And that's obviously something that we really are really interested in if we really want to know who Jesus was and understand the things that he said and taught. Yeah, and you and I have talked about that in this whole podcast around Revelation is there's no way we can understand how it applies to our lives today if we first don't ground it in the cultural context in which it was written. Yeah, exactly. And this these Dead Sea Scrolls really help flesh out some of that context and some of that understanding of what was leading to um, these writings. Yeah, that's really awesome. And uh, so we've been talking about Revelation, and we've talked about how Revelation is an apocalypse and we talked about how it doesn't mean that it's about what the end of the world is going to be, but it's about this unveiling and pulling back the curtain, and it's uh, it, it gives us insight into what's going on in the spiritual realm. And uh, in Revelation chapter four and chapter five, we are John is kind of caught up and he's called up by the voice from chapter one, who's the voice of Jesus, uh, the one who sounds his voice is like a trumpet, and he's called up into the very throne room of heaven. And we get this amazing picture, an amazing description of what he sees when he's up there. And it is just a spectacular vision of a throne with, uh, you know, God sitting on the throne. And there's these elders, and they're on 24 thrones that are surrounding the throne. And there are these living creatures that are also in the picture. And there's some interesting descriptions of them. 
Um, and then in chapter 5, we see, the, obviously, they're worshiping God. And then in chapter 5, we see the lamb come into the scene, and he's the one who's worthy to uh, take the scroll and break apart the seals, which then obviously leads into the seven seals. But we just want to, we thought it'd be great to just ask you, like, how are we supposed to understand what's going on? Who are all of these angels, these spiritual beings that are in this scene? Because oftentimes, especially from coming from a Protestant background, we don't tend to focus a whole lot on angels or spiritual beings or demons. We just tend to like to keep things very, you know, succinct and neat and tidy. But Revelation kind of forces us to think bigger and to think about what is actually happening in this spiritual realm. So we would love it if you could just give us any insights into these chapters and what's going on. Sure. I, I, I'm going to start off on a, on a controversial note. All right. I like it. I like, yeah. This is awesome. There, there's a word that I think that should be excised, should be removed from um, Christian dialogue and theology. It's the word monotheism. Ooh. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Are we going to have to boot you off this podcast or what? <laughs> That's right. Get rid, of, get rid of the heretic right away. But there are all kinds of spiritual beings in the Old Testament that are referred to as gods. Hmm. Now, what that doesn't mean is that these beings are on the same level as Yahweh or the Lord. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely not. There's, there's only one God who is the creator of all things. Yeah. That's very clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, there are lots of beings that go by various names, including gods, what we might refer to as lowercase g gods. Mm-hmm spirits um sometimes they're referred to as sons of god and these beings in the context of the old testament are part of god's entourage or his council Hmm. and this concept of the divine council is something that was widespread in the ancient world and so we shouldn't be surprised that ancient Israel had a similar concept of God, although the differences are more important than the similarities, but nonetheless, the similarities are there. And so the way that I try to explain it to people sometimes is like this. You see a celebrity go into a restaurant or out in public. Very rarely are they by themselves. Mm-hmm. They're often with their entourage, <laughs> right? And that kind of demonstrates that they are a big deal, or at the very least, they are trying to demonstrate by having their entourage with them that they are a big deal. And I think that when we read about God having a council mm. or having an entourage, to use a modern term, it points to his grandeur and and similar you know if we look at other so-called gods in the ancient world they were depicted as having an entourage as well 
to kind of boost their status. Hmm. The, the thinking is, if you have subordinates, that must mean you're pretty important, right? Yeah. And so God has these spiritual beings who are variously called. Sometimes they're called angels. Now, in kind of modern layman's terms, if I can use that expression, angels are kind of viewed as the same as they're viewed the same as any other spiritual beings on a technical level. Angels are kind of at the, the lower end of the, um, of the spectrum. Hmm. They, they're kind of the, the worker bees <laughs> angel. The, 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 the term angel literally means messenger. Yeah. In both Hebrew and Greek. It means messenger. And so they were kind of the, they were the, the, the worker bees. Okay. But in, in a, in a popular sense, angels god spirits they all get sons of god they all get kind of grouped together as being the same thing and that's fine but as long as we realize that on a technical level there is maybe a hierarchy or a difference yeah that's really interesting and when you talk about throwing out the term monotheism um what you're really kind of getting at is that there are all of these different spiritual beings or as you're saying gods and we might say lowercase g but especially in the old testament when you're reading through the old testament and uh, if you're reading in hebrew you'll come across the term elohim which is just the word for god and it's used of all these different entities or you know beings and so you know to say there's only one elohim is a little bit misleading but when we talk about monotheism what we're really talking about as you said is that Yahweh is the creator God and he is the most powerful and kind of the preeminent out of all of these this class of spiritual beings as we might say is that is that a good kind of summary maybe yeah that's that's a that's an excellent way to encapsulate it yeah that's really interesting and um so you talk about this kind of hierarchy of different beings um, and how angels are the honey, you know, the worker bees or um, what, what other kind of, you know, if we go up the food chain, so to speak, what <laughs> other kind of, you know, beings would be in that list? We're just really interested to, to dive in on this. Sure. Uh, well, do you have, if you're, if you're looking at, um, if you're looking at the old Testament specifically, um, the, Interestingly, the angel of the Lord or the angel of God, mm. even though that term angel is used, it seems to be a, a very high ranking official. In fact, sometimes when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, th there's some ambiguity. Is that God himself speaking or is it the angel? Now, I think the best way to make sense of that is this notion that if an official emissary from the king has come. Mm. Those words of the messenger are the same as the words of the king. Mm, that's that's the kind of the, the concept that you have to have in mind there. But this angel of the angel of the Lord, um, even though in some of the ancient sources, angel is, as I, as I mentioned, kind of lower in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm this angel of the Lord seems to be a big deal in the Old Testament. 
There's another figure from Joshua 5, the commander of the host of the Lord. Hmm. Yeah. And um, sometimes people think, well, maybe that's just another designation for the angel of the Lord, and that's possible. As we move along in the Old Testament, we are introduced to figures like Michael or Gabriel. Hmm. And in Jewish tradition, they are referred to as archangels. Now, that term itself is not used in the Old Testament. That is a, a term that we pick up from Jewish tradi tradition, and we find it actually in the New Testament. But over time, um, people attributed or, or, or developed this hierarchy, and from the perspective of, of being a person of faith, we, we understand it as God revealing more as time went on. Mm. But these terms are not... In the earliest parts of the Old Testament, we don't come across um, these terms or even a um, kind of a, a detailed hierarchy. It's not until later that we kind of have more to work with, if I can put it that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so the all of this, you know, to, to get back to our our focus of the day all of this is important for understanding what's going on in, in revelation and the, you go ahead yeah i just wondering like one of the things that you've been talking about here is there's this gap in our bible and we talked about this i think in the first week a little bit there's this gap between the old testament and the new testament um and in the protestant circle especially we've talked about like there's this silence uh, but in this gap, there are these books that have been written uh, in Jewish history, the um, Enoch and the Maccabees and all this stuff. There's this actual history this, uh, that contributed to this development of understanding the, the theological and the spiritual around uh, messiahship, about this expectation of Christ, around uh, the theology of spiritual beings. Like There's this huge development during... The, the second temple period that uh, leading up into the time of Christ's coming that we sometimes think is so quiet but actually is very uh, informative to some of the things that we believe and accept today. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need to be careful of forgetting that that stuff is there and a lot of Christians aren't aware of how informative that's been on our own viewpoints. Oh, absolutely. And you, you need to... There's kind of a there's a double-edged sword there because as as Protestants we don't accept certain books mm. as canonical or mm -hmm. as inspired or I mean that's a different discussion for a different day, um, but at the same time the New Testament writers were very familiar with those works mm. and elements of those books or their influence or the imagery or the language from those books pop up in the New Testament. So there again, if we want to understand the New Testament as fully as we can, there's value in understanding the Dead Sea Scrolls and the books that aren't in our Old Testament and are in, for example, uh, Catholic Bibles. Mm -hmm. We don't have to perhaps accept them as inspired, but we do ourselves a disservice 
not being familiar with them and not understanding them. Absolutely. Yeah, they're still really useful, even if we don't want to necessarily put them in that category of inspired. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, and and, as I mentioned, that's a different discussion for a different... Yeah, Yeah, that'll be our next podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So coming back to Revelation chapter 4 and this throne vision... Um, there's a few different visions of the throne of God in the Old Testament. I think maybe some of the most you know, significant would be Ezekiel chapter 1 mm-hmm. is a really elaborate description, um, Daniel chapter 7, and Isaiah chapter 6. And if you go back, and maybe if you want to, um, you, know, you can pause it right now and go back and look at those, and then read those, and then come and read Revelation chapter 4. There's a lot of similarity between those. Um, I would be curious just to get your take on, you know, what is the, is there like a, you know, a, a relationship is John specifically going back to those and pulling things out and just to kind of get your thoughts on like, what is the, the big point of what's going on in this chapter of like, what, why does he bring up this vision of the throne room of God? Mm. Great questions again. Um, the, the short answer to your question um, about the different texts, and it's funny, I just finished recording a lecture on Ezekiel 1 this morning. Oh, there um, we go. <laughs> we got the right guy. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm teaching a course on Isaiah right now and spoke with somebody about their presentation on chapter 6 of Isaiah this morning as well. So, awesome. But all of, those, all of those passages, and those are three big ones, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7, they figure prominently in Revelation, and they influence the pictures that we have here. Now, again, I, I want to be careful that I don't talk about this in scholarly scholarly terms too much, mm. but to, to, to put it this way, I think will be helpful. You can tell me if it's helpful or not. Your, your listeners can tell me if it's yeah. helpful or not. But God doesn't as people of faith, we don't believe that God works in a vacuum. He works with people on an as-is, where-is basis. Mm. He, um, we don't believe that God kind of, Christians don't believe that God kind of downloaded his messages to people without working through their personalities and their backgrounds. He inspired prophets, and I take seriously both of those elements. Yeah, He inspired mm-hmm. them but they're prophets who are people that have personalities. Yeah, for sure. And, and so their, their backgrounds, their emphases, their interests are all part of the equation. And so when, we, when, when I say that um, those texts influenced uh, John and, and the book of Revelation, that's, that's what I mean when I say those things. Mm-hmm. It's all just part of the... It's all part of their cultural background and their faith and their theology. Yeah. And so Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 1 has the um, what people often refer to as the UFO vision. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, that is a, a, a picture of, of God's throne chariot. Mm. And it's, it's not hemi-powered, it's spirit-powered. <laughs> <laughs> I like and, that. You know, the we- the wheels can go in all kinds of different directions and but the spirit pervades them and and um and and of course God 
who is is indescribable. Uh, and and I, Ezekiel only gets a, a glimpse of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He doesn't see the Lord directly. Mm. It seems that was more than enough for him. Yeah. Um, but who are the attendants of this throne chariot? We have those four living creatures, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 that are described as part human, uh, part ox, part lion. Um, what's the other one? What's the one I'm missing? Eagle. 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 Yeah. So maybe it's the, the I, I read this at some point. Maybe that's supposed to uh, capture the, the swiftness, the ferocity, the strength, and the wisdom of, you know, of the created order. Um, what this is saying, though, again, to have attendance with that kind of a resume, yet they're still outshone by the one who sits on the throne. Mm. Same thing in Isaiah. You have the, the seraphim. Uh, the, the verb in Hebrew, seraph, means to burn or to be on fire. That, how's that for a description of these heavenly beings, right? Yeah. Yet, they're nothing compared to the Lord. And, and interestingly, one of the, let's just very, I have my, uh, my Bible here. Let's flip over to Isaiah chapter 6 just for a second. Yeah, for sure. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That term, Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, mm-hmm. is, is a reference to the angelic armies. The, the Lord of hosts, that's what it means. And in, interestingly, um, um, Eugene Peterson, in the message, he, he translates that the Lord of the angel armies. And I think that's a really great way of, uh, of capturing what that expression means, what that title means. Yeah, and even those seraphim are outshone by by God. Isaiah is terrified, but it's when he sees God that he says, "I have unclean lips." So, in, in talking about this, there's um, there's a number of debate of what these creatures are, what they represent. Uh, I know some of the early church fathers believed that they represented uh, the four gospels. But they couldn't agree on which four Gospels they would represent. Uh, and uh, I know some people say, well, it doesn't represent the four Gospels. It, they are creatures themselves uh, that have a, a particular purpose. So is that what, what you would think too? Or what, what's your thoughts on do they represent the Gospels? Or what is their intent or their, their purpose as these four very strange-looking beings? Mm. I'll, I'll just say right off the bat, the patristic interpretation, you know, the, the church fathers is not my area of expertise, even a little bit. <laughs> um, some of my uh, some of my friends and, and colleagues, that's up there, Ali. Um, and it's a fascinating it's a fascinating area of study. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the church fathers, they thought all kinds of weird things yes. um, and, and tried to tried to use an allegorical interpretation like you just mentioned like these four beings represent the four gospels that's nice but uh, there's no no indication that that's what it means Mm. 
I think what these beings are, they, I don't think they represent anything except the, the grandeur and the, the splendor, the majesty, the holiness of their creator. I think there it's is, awesome we keep coming back to that. Yeah, and one yeah. of the things that I uh, just really love about the way that you're trying to guide us and are thinking about this is oftentimes we get so caught up in just kind of the weirdness and we're like, there must have been a reason that they were as, you know, they described them as an eagle or an ox or something. And we try to think of like, you know, so specifically that there must be this like exact reason or exact representation or correlation. And I feel like what you're trying to say is, you know, this was their their worldview. This the text that they grew up with when they thought about the throne room of God, if John was growing up, he would have thought naturally of the Isaiah 6 passage, the Ezekiel 1, the Daniel 7. Mm -hmm. And so when he's writing this, this is just like the imagery that kind of naturally is spewing out of him as he's having this vision, is that like he, you know, this is his worldview, and this is how he is seeing things as he's, you know, says like he's in the spirit, and this is what is coming out. It's from God, but it's, it's not neglecting his own upbringing and personality and culture. And so the main point, as I think of what you're saying, is let's not get too lost in all the details and trying to identify everything. The main point of this chapter is that holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's these amazing creatures and beings, and yet it's still the Lord who is the, the most majestic of all of them. They're all bowing down and worshiping him. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really good. Um cuz I do think that, you know, it's just our in our nature, maybe it's our western nature that we just are so analytical that we just want to like figure out exactly like what does this mean and what does this mean and why did they say this instead of this, but yeah, maybe that's, you know, it's not that it's wrong, but sometimes it's just we need to we need to answer the questions that they were trying to answer and not the questions that we bring to the text. Oh, that's that's a that's a great one-liner right there. That's you know you gotta you gotta patent that. <laughs> no. And I think we've given up like culturally, we've given up a lot of our mystic practices, our mystic beliefs for scientific. Mm, right? Yeah, and so we are very um, distant from mystical thought, from spiritual thought, spiritual beings. If we can't analyze it scientifically, quantify yeah. it, then we have to try, right? We have to try to personify it in some way, make it something that we can, you know, look at and observe and mm -hmm. replicate um, instead of just accepting that there's this mystical aspect of spirituality that's not fully understandable. Yeah. And uh, one of the other things that we wanted to ask you about while we have you here is now in these chapters, um, it doesn't get into the kind of forces that are opposed to God as much. Uh, but we know that in Revelation, obviously, there's this cosmic struggle and battle that's going on. And in some of the later chapters, we really start to see that play out. But just to ask you, um, you know, we, what would what would you say to people who have the question of, you know, who is the devil or who is Satan? Like, what is the backstory? Because so many people have that question of like, you know, was Satan a fallen angel? Or like, what do we actually know about his origins? And how should we think about uh, even in our own spiritual lives, how are we to think about our spiritual battle against these dark forces 
that are obviously portrayed in Revelation. So how are we supposed to relate to that as followers of Jesus today? So a few questions there, but I'd just be curious to know some of your thoughts on those things. Sure. Um, what, one of my favorite passages in Revelation um, is uh, in Revelation 12, where it talks about um, it talks about Satan fighting against Michael. Mm. And the, 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 the archangel. And I think that in that picture, in that depiction, there is some not so veiled smack talk. There's some <laughs> ancient religious smack talk. You know, when a, 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 somebody sacks the quarterback, they, you know, they, they point at him and, and talk at him and, and you say, you're not getting up anytime soon, that kind of thing. It, this is all over the place in religious texts and um, even in the New Testament and, and in the Old Testament. But if you think about it, it's not God or Jesus who are taking on Satan hmm. in that passage. It's Michael. What does that say? Yeah. It says that God's angelic lieutenant is sufficient to be dispatched to take on Satan. Hmm. Wow. Again, pointing to the grandeur of the of God and the lamb to use the revelation imagery and language yeah. God and Jesus their angelic lieutenant can handle that problem if you will I I'm much more comfortable talking about um, how ancient Jews and Christians understood angels and their theological significance than I am talking about spiritual warfare today. Mm. But I think what I would say to your question is this. If we take seriously the theological picture that we have from all of these texts, that God is God, no one else is God in the same way that he is. He is the creator of all things. Hmm. His grandeur and holiness and majesty far outshine any of his creatures. Then we don't need to worry about, as some people do, we don't need to worry about Satan and, and demons and spirits um, that's not to say we should ignore, you know, Paul's uh, injunction uh, or reminder that uh, our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. That's not what I'm saying. I, I, yeah. We shouldn't be flippant. We shouldn't be flippant about those things. But I think it's also an error to go around worrying and and you know praying over every nook and cranny of your house that you know Satan might be hiding there. If if Jesus is your Lord, you're serving him faithfully. In an ultimate sense, you don't need to worry about these lesser powers. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, like just thinking about the point of the book of Revelation that rings true that, you know, here are these first century Christians who were going through a really hard time. They were being persecuted. Some of them were, you know, being martyred. Uh, there was, you know, 
a lot of pressure to, you know, bow the knee to Caesar and they were being excluded from the economy and all these things. And the whole point really, and I think this gets to what you're saying of the book of Revelation is that there is, they are serving the one who is really on the throne and they're serving the one who is really has the authority. And so I think that just fits in really nicely with what you're saying is, you know, we serve the one who is the ultimate authority. And so even though we're going through tough things and we face real challenges, we know how it's going to, you know, we know how the story is going to turn out in the end. I think the flip side of that would be to say, don't be surprised when there are difficulties or opposition Mm. to things. Um, I I don't think that we get revelation and and these other biblical texts for our entertainment, but maybe to, to make us wise, not to be surprised, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you are undergoing. Um, I I think that's an important part of it too, but to land on what we were just saying that if God is God and Jesus is Lord, that is the most important thing and not to get bogged down and especially not to get worried. Um, as some, I, Cause sometimes you, you can see people almost panic or get in, whipped up into a frenzy about mm. these kind of things. And I don't think that that's helpful. I think that God wants us to, rest and, and trust in his sovereignty and his power and 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 take comfort in this in these majestic portraits of who he is that we have in for example revelation one of the strongest struggles i think we have is we've got this eastern theology that started to influence our culture and so we have this like yinging yang type perspective of this balance this perfectly equal balance between good and evil Mm. um and that or even going to the yin and yang that there's like a little bit of good in the evil and there's a little bit of evil in the good um and everything has to stay in balance and we see the world around us and we struggle with the question about why is there evil why is there suffering why is there pain um and so we begin to elevate and even in some of the pseudo-christian religions uh, this elevation of Satan almost to or in equal with the Lamb, with Jesus. Um, and I think what you said here is just so powerful for us to remember that the lieutenant of heaven's armies, not God, not Jesus, but the lieutenant of heaven's armies is sufficient enough to take on Satan and the evil that he oversees. So how much greater is our God than that evil? There is no balance between good and evil there is good that is supreme and will always reign supreme yeah now that's the that's the picture that's painted in revelation we also have in the gospels jesus very definitively saying that he has he has bound the strong man Hmm. so we're we're covered Mm -hmm. yeah and of course i mean i think of the end of matthew where jesus says like all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me and now he's giving us that authority mm. um, to go out and make disciples. And, you know, oftentimes we glance over that authority part and we skip to the go make disciples. But, you know, 
if you think about the throne room and the authority of the one who is sitting on the throne and the fact that Jesus has that authority is giving us like this commission from that one to go out and to uh, continue really his mission Mm -hmm. that he came to do. It's like, wow, like that's a lot of power behind us, right? (laughs) Like, uh, you know, we, you know, we're in a fight, but we're not powerless in that fight because of what Jesus did. Yeah. Uh, That's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been awesome. Oh, I don't know if we have, do you have any more uh, questions for? I do, but I should hold them. <laughs> <laughs> I could be here all day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, it's been uh, just really great to have you and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, and thank you, Dr. Walsh. Really I know that it. there's probably a lot of questions that have come up out of this, but there's also some answers. And I think that's how learning works is that as you learn more, uh, I think you'll often discover that you just have more questions because you don't know what you don't know. And once you know a little bit of what you don't know, there's a whole lot more you realize that you, you don't know. So uh, if you feel like you have more questions than you did, uh, if you got more questions out of this, that's a good thing. And uh, we would just encourage you to keep chasing down uh, those answers and continue to ask more questions. Uh, yeah. So thanks so much for joining us uh, today. Have a great one. My, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me.